19. Other Atarahumir, showed no signs of fatigue. By way of comparison, I will add that the best one among some young Mexicans, who raced at the same time, took 12 minutes for the circuit, and all arrived breathless, and would apparently not have been able to continue much longer. I was credibly informed that eight years ago a man who had died but a short time before could make 27 circuits, or more than 47 miles, on this race course. This runner was well known in that part of the Sierra. His antagonist made 26 circuits, then fell down exhausted, while the victor indulged in a prolonged dance the next day. The race lasted from noon until 8 o'clock in the evening. Some of the Tepehuan customs have been adopted by the Mexicans. For instance, after the harvesting is over, the owner or his son is tied onto a horse, and has to carry a cross made from three ears of corn. The horse is led to the house, and is received with rifle shots, and the men tell the women in the house that the man on the horse has stolen the corn, and they will not let him go unless they are given tesvino and a ball. The demand, of course, is acceded to, and drum and violin furnish the music for the dance. The Tepehuans around Pagora game now frequently rent their lands to the Mexicans for a term of years, but rarely get it back. For the neighbors had a powerful agent in Mescal. The enormous profit accruing from trading in this brandy with the natives may be judged from the fact that a demijohn of the liquid costing five contains 24 bottles, for each of which the trader gets from the Indians one sack of corn, worth one. On this quantity he realizes elsewhere at least five. In other words, on an outlay of, say, 50, he earns a gross 1.200, deducting expenses for transportation of the corn, etc. leaves still a net profit of at least 1.100. The Tepehuans had medicine lodges in remote places, where they secretly gather once a month, or every other month. The name of the lodge is Vakir Nuitadu Vakir the inside of the house, Nuitadu where there is singing, i.e., the house where there is singing inside. Here they sing to call down their Gatuni, whom they also call their brother-in-law Ganosi. He instructs the shaman how to proceed to get rain, and to avert evil, by making tesvino and by dancing. The gathering at the medicine lodge begins at dusk, three shamans being present. A cross is raised and many kinds of flowers from the barrancas are attached to it. Eagle feathers, too, are hung to it, as well as strings of beads. From each arm of the cross is suspended in Eye of the God, Volume I.I. Chap. Zai. Called in Tepehuan. Yezit. There are three jars with tesvino, and three bowls with neat are placed before the cross. The fire is put out, and the shamans begin to sing different songs with different melodies, continuing until nearly midnight, when a noise is heard on the roof, as if somebody were walking there. The Indians sing on, and the walking on the roof is heard three times. At last the roof opens, and behold somebody jumps on the floor three times. The singing stops, and Tunita Dios is among the people. He looks like a Tepehuan, with a breechcloth and tunic, but without blanket, and with a bandana around his head. The borders of the breechcloth and of the tunic are of gold, and so are the ends of his hair. Only the shamans see him. He greets them with the usual salutation, Vegas, and the assemblage responds in the same way. He plays with the Indians, and calls them his brothers-in-law. Three cigarettes are made and placed near the Tesvino. Smoke. Brother-in-law. They say. And all laugh and make merry with Tuni. He then makes a speech. Telling them to make plenty of Tesvino in their houses. In order that the world may not come to an end. He is invited to drink. And to sing three different songs. In which all the men join. He then drinks Tesvino. 
with such a girdle that all can hear it. How strong it island, he says, I may not even be able to get home. He also sprinkles Tesvino over them. Anyone who wants to drink simply stretches out his arm, saying nothing, and a full drinking gourd is placed in his hand. When empty, the gourd vanishes. Such a person will remain drunk until morning. Fortuny's hand is strong. He remains for about half an hour, and when he leaves he says that he will come back if the people make Tesvino for him. He vanishes like a breath, noiselessly, immediately after he has gone. A female deity comes, whom they call Santa Maria de Mother, that island the moon. The same salutations are exchanged, and the women ask her to sing. She, too, receives Tesvino, and makes a speech, the trend of which is that they must go on making the liquor through the year, lest their father should get angry and the world come to an end. Afterward the snow and the cold also come to play with the people in a similar way. Kukudri is the name of the master of the deer and the fish. He also makes rain and he is heard in the thunder. He is a small but thick-set man, and in foggy weather he rides on a deer over the mountain tops. When there is much fog and rain, a Tekawan may go to a wrestling contest with Kukudri in the forest. He throws an arrow on the ground, and the little man appears and agrees to put up a deer against the arrow. They wrestle, and often Kukudri is thrown. Although he is strong, then the man will find a deer close by, and shoot it. The fisherman hears in the ripple of the flowing water the weeping of Kukudri, and throws three small fish to him. If he should not do this, he would catch nothing. Kukudri would throw stones into the water and drive the fish off, or he would even throw stones at the man himself. The Tepewans never drink direct from a brook, but scoop up the water with their hands, else in the night the master of the spring might carry them inside of the mountain. They never cut their finger and toe nails, for fear of getting blind. They say that the seat of the soul is between the stomach and the chest, and they never wake up a man who is asleep, as his soul may be wandering about. Sometimes a man is ill because his soul is away. The doctors may be unable to make it come back, and still the man lives. Soul is breath, and when a man dies, his soul passes through the fontanels of the head, or through the eyes or the nostrils or the mouth. If anyone steps over a man, the latter will not be able to kill another deer in his life. A woman can be passed in this way without such danger. When the wind blows hard, it is because a woman delayed curing herself. The reason the Tepewans make four feasts to dispatch a dead woman from this world, and only three for a man, is their belief that a woman has more ribs than a man, and married women are not allowed to eat meat from the spinal column of the deer, as those bones look like arrows. If they ate this meat, their backs would grow curved and they would have back aches. The Tepewans do not eat pinoli with meat, because their teeth would fall out. After eating pinoli they rinse their mouths. One kind of squirtle is thought to change into a bat, another into a parrot. The ground squirtle changes into a serpent. Catfish become otters, and larvae on the madrona tree are transformed into doves. When a hen crows, an accident is going to happen, unless the hen is immediately killed. The moon sometimes has to fight with the sun, if weather depended only on the moon. It would rain always, for the benefit of the Tepewans. The Pleiades are women, and the women of this world are their sisters. They were living with a man who used to bring them their food. One day he could not find anything, and drew blood from the calf of his leg, and brought it in a leaf from the big-leaved oak tree. He told the women it was deer blood, and thus he sustained them. On discovering that it was his blood, they became very angry and ascended to heaven, where they are yet to be seen. When he came home in the afternoon he missed them, 
and followed their tracks, but could not find them. He slept alone, and in the night he said to the mice, which he took for the women, Come, come to boil the deer blood. He continued his search until he reached the place where they had disappeared. The women, seeing from above how he went around looking for them, laughed, and he caught sight of them and called out, Tie your girdles together that I may get up also. He climbed up, but when he had almost reached them, the oldest of the women told the others to let him drop, because he had deceived them. He became a coyote and has remained in that shape ever since. If he had succeeded in getting up, he would have become a star, the same as the women. The three stars in the belt of Orion are dear. Chapter XXI Beyond Morlo's wild and broken country The enormous flower spike of the Amoli subtropical vegetation of northwestern Mexico destructive ends the last of the tubers a spectral ride back to the United States an awful thunderstorm close quarters zape antiquities when an angel dies mementos of a reign of terror the great Tepehuang revolution of 1616 the fertile plains of Durango after having at last succeeded in getting men I continued my journey to the northwest over the very broken country toward the town of Morlos, inhabited almost entirely by pagan Tarahumares. There were, of course, no roads, only Indian trails, and these in many places were dangerous to travel with beasts of burden. The barrancas during the month of May are all but intolerably hot, and it was a relief to get up now and then on the strips of highland that intersperse the country and look as fine as parks. At the higher altitudes I noticed a great number of eagle ferns, and the Indians here plant corn in the small patches between the ferns, merely putting the grains into the gravelly red ground without tilling the soil at all. Lower down were groves of big-leaved oak trees. Their leaves are sometimes over ten inches long and of nearly the same breadth, and are frequently utilized by the Indians as improvised drinking vessels. On the summits of the barrancas, and on the slopes over which we descended into the valleys, an astonishing number of parasites and epiphytes was observed especially on the pines and oaks. The round yellow clusters growing on the branches of the oaks sometimes give the entire forest a yellow hue. In the foothills I saw a kind of parasite, whose straight, limber branches of a fresh, dark green color hang down in bunches over 20 feet in length. Some epiphytes, which most of the year look to the casual observer like so many tufts of hay on the branches, produce at certain seasons extremely pretty flowers. In the valleys of the western inclines of the Sierra there is nothing suggestive of tropical luxuriance or romance in the landscape, which impresses one chiefly with its towering mountains and vast slopes. Grass is plentiful enough among the stones and rocks, and groups of fresh green trees indicate where ground is moist and water to be found. The country is dry, and from January to June there is no rain, yet an aloe, which smells like ham, is so full of juice that it drips when a leaf is broken. This Two, is the home of the agaves, or century plants, and I know of nothing so astonishing as the gigantic flower spike that shoots upward from the comparatively small plant called a moly. One fine day in May I came upon one, which I measured, it was by no means the largest one to be found, but the spike itself, without the stalk, was 15 feet 8 inches in height, and 31 inches in circumference at its thickest part, it seemed a pity to cut down such a magnificent specimen. But, as I wanted to count the flowers, I had one of my men fell it with a couple of blows of an axe. After counting the flowers on one section, I estimated that the entire spike bore at least 20.000 beautiful yellow blossoms, each as large as a tulip. It required two men to carry the spike, and as they walked they were followed by a multitude of hummingbirds, 
which remained fearlessly at work among the flowers of what they evidently considered their own private garden. They might have to fly miles before finding another like this. The flower stalk of the maguey is eaten before it flowers. It looks like a big bamboo stick, and when roasted in the hot ashes is very palatable, sweet, and tender. Below the Indian village of Colorado stands an isolated peak 400 to 500 feet high, in regard to which the Tarahuares had the following legend, a Tepehuan once cut bamboo reeds and tobacco, down on the river, and being followed up by the tubers changed himself into the stone. The man's girdle can still be made out. At the village my interpreter asked me for the cover of a copy of London Truth, and for the wrapper on my photographic films that with these pictures he might adorn the altar of the old adobe church. The country is but thinly populated east and north of Morlos, and the steepness of the valleys through which the Indians are scattered, makes it difficult to reach them. At the time of my visit these Indians had absolutely nothing to sell us but the sweet mezcal stocks. In the end of May I reached Morlos, an old mining place, about 1.800 feet above sea level. The surrounding hills and mountains were covered with the typical Mexican vegetation of the warm regions. The many odd-shaped cacti form a strong contrast to the light and pinnate leaves of the numerous leguminous shrubs, acacia, sophronia, etc. The chilicote, or coral tree erythria, with scarlet flowers, is seen everywhere, also palo blanco, with a white stem, looking like an apple tree. The year 1893 was an exceedingly dry one throughout northern Mexico. My mules. Obliged to travel under a scorching Sunday sometimes had to be without water for 24 hours. Still, in those hot barrancas, I saw no difference in the vegetation. The trees and plants did not seem affected by rain or no rain. The only exception I noticed was that the feet, leaf-like joints of the nopal cactus shriveled up a little on the surface. But the fleshy inside seemed as juicy as ever. Even during the driest season the trees and shrubs here blossom and bear fruit and mornings and evenings the air is filled with the perfume of acacia, cacti, and other plants. One is at a loss to understand how the cattle can subsist on these shrubs, but they have adapted themselves to circumstances, and are able to chew up the thick stems of the cacti. In fact the whole plant, with the result, however, that their stomachs are so filled with spines that the Mexicans cannot utilize the tripe. The frugal Indian is the only one who does not reject it but manages to burn off the biggest spikes while toasting the tripe on cinders. Near Morlos are ancient house ruins, some round and some square, and also traces of circular fortifications built of loose stones. Several of the latter were from 16 to 20 yards in diameter and located on the top of mountain ridges. The remains are attributed to the Cocoyoms. The commonly accepted idea that in southern latitudes anything may be easily cultivated is often proved by actual observation to be fallacious. Sometimes there may be too much rain, sometimes not enough. The worst enemies of plant life in the warm countries are the many pests. One evening my host, Don Manuel Perez, showed me some of the foes he had to combat in order to maintain his garden. Certain kinds of ants bite off the flowers and leaves and carry away the pieces. The insects come out at night and may strip a tree of its leaves and fruits before morning. It was an astonishing sight to see the dark stem of an elder-looking dot as if it were green. On account of the multitude of ants, each of which carried a bit of green leaf half an inch long, every evening a man went around to burn them off with a torch of resinous pine wood. Some tuber Indians were induced to come to Morlos to be measured and photographed. The few representatives of the tribe I saw had good figures and small hands and feet. They seemed to be shy, but rather kind heart. 
jolly people, resembling the Tara who wears in appearance. They are found from the village of San Andres, three miles from Morlos, as far as the village of Tuberes. According to tradition their domain extended in former times much higher up on both sides of the river, to where Babora game is now, but they were gradually restricted to the locality on which the remnant of the tribe at present resides. They are said to have been fierce and constantly fighting the Tarahumers. There are now not more than a couple of dozen purebred tubers left, and only five or six of these know their own language, which is related to the Nahual. The name of the tribe as pronounced by themselves is Tuvalim. Most of the tubers are found in the Pueblo of San Miguel, 17 miles from Morlos, down the river. An old woman told me that she did not know what the tubers had done that they were disappearing from the world. The few remaining members of the tribe were related to one another, and the young people had to marry Mexicans. The customs of the tubers evidently resembled much those of their neighbors, the Tarahumers, who until recent years invited them to their dances. The tubers danced yoi, and the dancers accompanied their singing by beating two flat sticks, like two machetes. They did not use hickory. In the sacristy of the church in the old tuber village of San Andres, I found a complete Tesvino outfit, jars, spoons, etc. The vessels turned bottom up, ready for use. The saints, too must have Tesvino, because they are greedy and exacting, and have to be propitiated. The tubers are said to have worn white girdles. Mr. Hartman, whom I left in San Miguel to conclude some investigations, returned a few weeks later to the United States, on the small plateaus near San Miguel, 200 feet or more above the river. He found interesting old tombs, which were well known to the inhabitants under the name of Bovdas. The presence of a tomb was indicated on the surface by a circuit of stones from 3 to 5 feet in diameter set in the ground. There were groups of 10 or 12 circuits, and the tombs underneath were found at a depth of 5 or 6 feet. They consisted of small chambers excavated in the clay soil, and were well preserved. Though they contained no masonry work, still at one place a yoke of oxen while dragging the plow had sunk down into the subterranean cavity. The entrance to such a tomb is from one side where a large slab, placed in a slanting position, protects the inside. Nothing was discovered in the four tombs that were open but some curious slate-colored beads of burnt clay. People of the district reported, however, that small jars of earthenware had been found in the bovdas. No doubt the absence of skeletons was due solely to the length of time that had elapsed. For even in the cemetery of the church Mr. Hartman found similar tombs that contained several skeletons. These tombs were indicated by the same kind of stone circuits as the rest, but were only about three feet down in the hard clay, and had no slabs in front of the entrance. In one of them Mr. Hartman found six corpses more or less decomposed, the sepulchre having evidently been used for a long time. In the same cemetery the Mexicans buried their dead. I continued my journey down the river through the country once inhabited by the tubers, as the heat was intense. I availed myself of the light of the full moon and traveled at night. Now and then the red touched the big river where the croaking of the frogs was intensely doleful and monotonous, but with all so loud that on a quiet night like this they could easily be heard two miles off. Warm winds fanned me to sleep, and only when my mule ran me against some spiny branch, did I wake to find myself in a fantastic forest of leafless, towering cacti, that stood motionless, black, and silent in the moonlight, like specters with numberless arms uplifted. The overwhelming noise of the frogs seemed to voice their thoughts and forbid me to advance farther, but the mule accelerated its pace. The shadows glided quicker and quicker, up and down the stony, 
slippery path that wound its way through this ghostly forest. In the daytime there was a disagreeably strong, warm wind blowing, making it difficult even to get the saddles on our mules. But the nights were calm. At the Pueblo of San Ignacio nobody speaks the Tubertang. Blue herons had a permanent breeding place here on an almost perpendicular rock, four to six hundred feet high, where I counted twenty nests. In traveling down to Tiracaliente there is one place at which one must leave the river and ascend to the pine region. This is below the village of Tuberes. The river narrows here and forms rapids, and it has been calculated that the water in flood time rises sixty-five feet. Alligators do not go above these rapids. In today's journey from Morlos one may reach the undulating country of Sinalo, La Costa, which is warmer even than the Barrancas. At San Ignacio I left the river, and turned in a northeasterly direction to Batopilas. After five days pleasant sojourn at Mr. Shepard's hospitable home there, I again ascended the Sierra, and, after visiting the Indians of Santa Ana and its neighborhood, arrived at Guachalchic, leaving my mules here in charge of my friend Don Carlos Garcia. I soon started again toward the northeast on my way back to the United States, passing through the Indian ranches, and finally arriving at Karakak in Tarahumar Garakai, where there are houses, probably ancient on July 31st, that less than an hour's distance from the place I was overtaken by a thunderstorm, the heaviest my Mexicans or I had ever experienced. In a few minutes the almost level fields were flooded as far as the eye could see, and the road we followed began to run with brown water. As we advanced through the mud, the small arroyos were rapidly filling, the rain did not abate, and the force of the current steadily increased, when only 300 yards from the town we found ourselves at the edge of a muddy stream, running so rapidly that it tore pieces from the bank, and carried small pines and branches of trees with it, as it was impossible to cross it, we had to await, however impatiently, for the rain to subside sufficiently to allow us to wade through the water and all the next day was spent in drying my things. One year later I was again in Karakak, and from there I made my way to Guachalchik. One night I had to spend in the house of a civilized Indian, as it rained too heavily for us to remain outdoors. The house was made of stone and mud, without windows, and the door had to be closed on account of the dogs. There was no way for air to get in except through the chimney, over the fireplace. There were nine people and one baby in the small room. Strange to say. I slept well, my mules and outfit had been well taken care of at Guachalchik, and I now arranged with Don Carlos Garcia to take most of my belongings to Guanazavi, a mining town in the neighboring state of Durango, while with a few of the best mules I crossed Barranca de San Carlos near Guachalchik, and pursued my way through regions inhabited by Tarahumares and Tepehuans, a stammering Tarahumare was observed, the only Indian with this defect that has come to my notice. The road I followed to Guanazavi from Guadalupe y Calvo leads through a part of the Sierra Madre which is from 9 to 10,000 feet high and uninhabited, and for two days we met nobody. In winter the region is dreaded on account of the heavy snowfalls that are liable to occur here. Several people are said to have perished, and one freighter on one occasion lost 27 mules. In the wet season bears are numerous, and, according to trustworthy information, had attacked and eaten several tarahumares. We camped one night at a place where a man had been killed by robbers some time before, and one of the Mexicans shudderingly expressed his fear that we should probably hear the dead man cry at night. This led to a discussion among the men as to whether the dead could cry or not. The consensus of opinion was that the dead could cry, but they could not appear. This, by the way, is the common Indian belief.
My Tetawan servant took an intense interest in the arguments. His face became suddenly animated with fear, and the thought of the dead changed him from an indolent fellow into a valuable aid to my chief packer in watching the animals at night. His senses became so keen as to be quite reassuring in regard to a robber at night, and from that time on he was really a valuable man, active and alert. There is a small colony of Tarahumares living a few miles north of Guanazavi, near San Pedro. Here I excavated some corpses that had been buried several years before on a little plain. The graves were about four feet deep. In Guanazavi a silver bonanza was in full blast and much activity prevailed. We were now outside of the Sierra proper, but on the route south, which I followed for several days. I was never farther away from the mountain range than 30 miles. That zape about 20 miles to the south. There are some ancient remains, as the principal ones have been described by E. Gilliman who explored Mexico under Maximilian. It is not necessary for me to dwell on the subject. Suffice it to say that walls constructed of loose stones are commonly seen on the crests of the low hills and are attributed to the Cocoyoms. Circles and squares made of stones set upright in the ground may also be seen and nicely polished stone implements are frequently to be found nearby. Outside of Zape are a number of ancient burial caves, which have been disturbed by treasure seekers. As a curiosity, I may mention that a Mexican once brought to light a big lump of salt that had been buried there. It was given to the cattle. One afternoon a gay little procession of men and women passed my camp, some on horseback, others walking. One of the riders played the violin, another one beat a drum. An old woman who just then stepped up to sell something explained to me that an angel was being buried. This is the designation applied to small children in Mexico, and I could see an elaborate white bundle on a board carried aloft by a woman. My informant told me that when a child dies the parents always give it joyfully to heaven, set off fireworks and dance and are jolly. They do not weep when an infant dies, as the little one would not enter paradise, but would have to come back and gather all the tears. The way southward led through undulating country devoid of interest, to judge from the clusters of ranches, so numerous as to form villages, the land must be fertile, there were no more Indians to be seen, only Mexicans, all along the road we observed crosses erected, where people had been killed by robbers, or where the robbers themselves had been shot, a man's body is generally taken to the cemetery for burial, whether he was killed or executed, but the cross is raised on the spot where he fell. The crosses are thus mementos of the reign of terror that prevailed in Mexico not long ago. Most of the victims were so-called Arabs, or traveling peddlers, sometimes Syrians or Italians, but generally Mexicans. The most important place I passed was the town of Santiago de Pepasquiro, which is of some size, and situated in a rich agricultural country. The name of the place means possibly, Paquero, I want peace alluding to the terrible defeat of the Indians by the Spaniards in the 17th century. There is reason to believe that before 1593 the central and western part of Durango had been traversed and peopled by whites, and that many Spaniards had established haciendas in various parts of the valley. They held their own successfully against the Tetuans until 1616, when these, together with the Tarahumares and other tribes, rebelled against them. All the natives rose simultaneously killed the missionaries, burned the churches, and drove the Spaniards away. A force of Indians estimated at 25.000 marched against the city of Durango, carrying fear everywhere, and threatening to exterminate the Spanish, but the governor of the province gathered together the whites to the number of 600, 
determined to maintain in peace the province which his Catholic Majesty had placed under his guardianship, he routed the enemy, leaving on the field more than 15.000 dead insurgents, without great loss to his own troops. The Indians then sued for peace, and after their leaders had been duly punished, they were dispersed to form pueblos. The insurrection lasted over a year, and many bloody encounters between the natives and their new masters occurred in the course of the following centuries, the result being that the Indians in the state of Durango had not been able to maintain themselves, except in the extreme northern and southern sections. There was an epidemic of typhoid fever in some of these ranch villages, and in one place I saw two dogs hung up in a tree near the road, having been killed on account of hydrophobia. A strong wind was blowing day and night on the lanos along the river course, which annoyed us not a little. It was a real relief to get up again on the Sierra, about 14 miles south of Pepasquiro, and find ourselves once more among the quiet pines and madronas. Chapter XXV Winter in the High Sierra Mines Pueblo Nuevo and its amiable Padre Abal in my honor Sancta Simplicit as a fatiguing journey to the Pueblo of Lodges and the southern Tepehuans don't travel after nightfall. Five days spent in persuading people to pose before the camera of the regime of old missionary times strangers carefully excluded everybody contemplating marriages arrested shocking punishments for making love bad effects of the severity of the laws. The Sierra for several days journey southward is about 9.000 feet high, and is not inhabited, except in certain seasons by people who bring their cattle here to graze. I doubt whether anyone ever lived here permanently. The now extinct tribes, to whose territory this region belonged, dwelt, no doubt, in the valleys below. The high plateau consists of small hills, and traveling at first is easy, but it becomes more and more rough as one approaches the big broad Barranca de Ventanas, having passed for several days through lonely, cold, and silent woods, now and then interspersed with a slumbering snowfield, it was a real pleasure to come suddenly, though only in the beginning of February, upon plants in full bloom on the high crest that faced the undulating lowlands of Sinalo, which spread themselves out below, veiled in mist, the warm air wafted up from the hot country brings about this remarkable change in the floor of the precipitous inclines toward the west. The air was filled with perfume, and it was lovely to be on these high, sunny tops. Foliage trees, especially alders, began to appear among the pines, basking in the dazzling sunshine. I also noticed some fine ferns spreading out their G.